Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests. And coming up on today's show, Congressman Brendan Boyle. He's a rising star in the Democratic Party and he's going to be joining us to talk about his recent trip to Ireland where he addressed Dáil Éireann. He's also be going to be giving us his take on the US political landscape as they prepare for the primaries ahead of the elections next year. And this week there were boundless changes in the boundaries as the Electoral Commission set out a map for the next election. Well, it might not exactly be a starting gun but the bullets are certainly now loaded so we're going to have Gary Murphy of DCU and Jennifer Kavanagh who's a constitutional law expert to take us through what exactly they mean for us the voters. And finally Germany the economic powerhouse of Europe faces a lot of economic challenges at the moment it has dipped into recession and Derek Scally of the Irish Times is going to join us to assess if Germany can now be considered the sick man of Europe once more. Lots of people got in touch with us about last week's show and thank you for that especially the interview that we did with Dermot Murnahan the broadcaster formerly of Sky with some interesting things to come so thank you for that if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com I'm also open on Twitter at stockNT Now first up today we're going to look Uh, over to Germany because many say it's falling behind in European and world rankings as their economy, investment in infrastructure and technology are all lagging behind where many feel they should be. But what does it mean for Germany and indeed what does it mean for the European wider economic and political landscape? Well, here to talk to us more about this topic is Derek Scally of the Irish Times. He's based in Berlin for the Irish Times. Derek, thanks very much for joining us today and welcome to News Talk. Hello, Mandy. Thanks for having me on. Now, um, just going to start off with like trying to get a picture of where the German economy is at, Derek. Uh, we heard Earl Olaf Scholz earlier in the year in an interview with Bloomberg magazine saying it definitely wasn't going to tip into recession this year, but in fact it finds itself in recession in 2023. So can you just tell us what's going on in the economy at the moment in a broad sense? Yes, um, Germany's really had a, a rather golden run the last 20 years. It's... Um, since it's almost 20 years since it last had serious economic turbulence it is uh, you might remember the the days of uh, Gerhard Schröder and talk of the sick man of Europe and Gerhard Schröder effectively sacrificed his career with rather drastic reforms he was a center left politician but he was these reforms were quite harsh and he sort of he foreshortened his political career with economic and social reforms because the economy was in such a bad way Merkel Angela Merkel got in in 2005 and uh, she served for four terms and she never really did much in terms of reforms, but she certainly kept Germany steady during uh, the banking, uh, the economic and banking crisis, uh, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, uh, and so her her time was really more of stability. So she got out of power in uh, twenty twenty one, and what we've seen is now just uh, eventually uh, things begin to catch up with Germany in terms of economic and social reforms, infrastructure investment, and so on. So many people are now looking at Germany from abroad, but also in inside Germany saying we really need to reform taxes, we need to reform pensions, we need to invest more. And at the same time, um, the good years when many of that, those things could have been done with uh, Angela Merkel, she was almost fighting crises for, for most of her four terms. That, that moment has passed. So now you have calls for reforms and also the German economy now in a technical recession. And unlike uh, most of the other uh, uh, G7 countries, uh, it's the only G7 country that isn't forecast to have a growth this year. So it's it's really starting to set alarm bells off and people aren't sure if this is just a cyclical thing. Um, Germany is a, a very export-oriented economy. So if the world economy slows down, um, we saw it during various crises over the last year, the German companies lose their customers. But the German economy is also quite linked to China. So as you see, China has been uh, is going through its difficulties. So that immediately has a, a knock-on effect on, on Germany. So you're seeing various things. We've had a very good 20-year run uh, compared to other countries like Ireland and elsewhere. But now the problems do seem to be piling up and the political will to tackle them or the necessity to tackle many unpleasant things all at once. We don't seem to be quite there yet. Mm. So lots to unpick there. Um, 
And um, as you say, there's a lot of issues that are facing Germany at the moment, external and internal. Let's look at the external factors first that are affecting their economy base. Um, you mentioned manufacturing there. Uh, what, what type of issues are they facing and what are the problems that have caused them to kind of, um, I suppose, fall behind others or uh, what are those factors that are affecting them? Well, there's, there's there's various factors. I'll focus on two. One is finding customers. Um, Germany has a huge investment. Uh, it's, it's Germany's still a country that manufactures things, it makes things, it makes the machines that make other things, uh, and also it has a very strong automotive industry. Or people would say the critics say it had a very strong automotive industry. Um, so you have a huge dependency on China and the manufacturers that are here. Um, have been investing hugely in China, in particular country, uh, car companies like Volkswagen, chemical companies like BASF. They say they're investing hugely in China because, well, first of all, they just cannot avoid China. You cannot get around China these days if you want to be a world player. And secondly, they say they're hugely investing in China uh, and elsewhere because it's just getting increasingly difficult to operate as a manufacturing company in Germany. Uh, there's been huge questions about the bureaucracy, but also the wage costs. But at the moment, the debate in Germany is about energy. Is German, German energy is, uh, and electricity is among the highest in Western Europe um, for various reasons, including uh, climate levies and so on. So there's a huge debate about whether it's even economical for these companies mm. to operate in Germany. So what you're seeing is um, they're just big questions about is the German economy based on um, People have said in the past it was based on uh, cheap energy from Russia and selling lots of stuff to China. And we've seen what's happened with the German dependency on energy um, and uh, trying to find alternative energy sources while you already have hugely expensive electricity at home. That's a challenge. And then China isn't buying the way it used to. Therefore, the customers have um, have gone away. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Germany has it, it, Germany is unique, I think, among European countries. It, it loves to beat itself up. So when other people outside of Germany start raising questions like The Economist magazine talking about is Germany once again the sick man of Europe, they love this here. Mm. It's almost like a self-flagellation going on. And you can get into a into a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, and uh, auto-suggestion yeah. that everything is doomed. It's something in the German character. I've seen it several times. Um, but yeah, maybe this time is different. Maybe we are back to 2003 or maybe this is a, 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 an unpleasant outlook that is challenging other countries and will also pass here. Mm, that's really interesting about the manufacturing side and I suppose automotive industry in particular, so synonymous Volkswagen, BMW. A lot of that been affected by the advancement in tech in China, but also, as you mentioned, the energy issue. It's not the only industry either. Pharmaceuticals, I think, which is a very heavily intensive um, gas generated electricity industry mm-hmm. is something else. On the energy side of things in particular, um, I kind of feel a bit sorry for uh, Olaf Scholz here because he's he's actually inherited a lot of legacy issues on the energy side, I, I suppose, in particular. And, and then a lot of people saying that actually... He dealt with the short term crisis on energy quite well because there was that doomsday scenario, but they seemed to to move in to self-preservation mode much more quickly than a lot of the member states did. But when it comes to the longer term, is there any, um, I suppose, move on their part to make themselves more self-sufficient and move toward renewables in a way that we're actually trying to do here in Ireland as well? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, they everyone now here admits that they made a terrible mistake with Russia. The idea was if you've got such a reliable supplier of energy and Russia and previously the Soviet Union was a hugely reliable supplier of energy, they all said, well, even the darkest days of the Cold War, the gas kept flowing. But um, they just believed, some would say naively, that if you're doing business with somebody, the likelihood that you're going to be in a near war situation with them is much lower. Um, We all know where that happened. Mm. Germany was hugely dependent on Russian gas. Um, but to be honest, lots of other countries in Europe were uh, as well. It's just because of Germany's size, but also its huge industry. It attracts a lot of attention. But the remarkable thing, as you said, Germany did this remarkable pivot. Uh, in, in a series of months, it reduced its um, dependency on Russian gas. It was, I think, I, I haven't got the numbers in my head, but it was definitely over 50% and we're, we're down to n- nothing now. There's yeah. actually no Russian gas flowing. So for a country of this size, 
decides to do a, a, like a handbrake turn and keep the lights on and keep the um, heating on um, and keep the manufacturing going. Yes, there are arguments of cost, but just in terms of Germany got into survival mode and it survived and it's going fine. Um, it's amazing. Uh, they they say in Germany, eating bread is soon forgotten. You know, as somebody with a government <laughs> background, you know that uh, when things go right, you get no thanks. Um, so things are considerably have considered considering the challenges, yeah, the scale uh, of the dependency. It's amazing how Germany got through the last winter and uh, all of the doomsday scenarios didn't, um, didn't no. pass. And I I think that's absolutely right. And I. I'm struck by something you said about though um, the introspection and the self-flagellation that goes on in Germany. That is something I suppose that we have to look at that when there is a crisis they, they do actually manage to get themselves out of it fairly quickly. I guess where the wider concern might be is if they are kind of internalising themselves and um, looking at their own problems, trying to fix their own problems. They're such a big player in the European context, uh, economically and also politically. Does that introspection take over from them? Um, and, you know, the way that they're so important in the European context, do they kind of lose sight of that? I suppose I'm thinking most particularly in a geopolitical sense when we're talking about things like the war in Ukraine, um, the US have done a lot of the heavy lifting on that. What is the attitude in Germany now, like politically, are they kind of looking inward more than outward? That's a very long-winded way of asking that question. Yeah, yeah I think they're they're asking, they're really asking themselves, well, are we self-sufficient? Mm. Like you asked in the previous question, just something that occurred to me. I mean, Germany's renewable sector is, it's big and it's getting much bigger. I mean, uh, it's renewables are now, I was looking at it recently, it's up to about 52 or 53% of their energy supply is from renewables, mm. um, from wind, from solar, uh, from hydroelectric. So, um, and it's jumped. I remember a while back I was looking at it, I think it was in 2001 or 2002, it was 46 and I think we're up to about 52, 53. Now, this is a country the scale of Germany. So, they've already been investing hugely for the last 10 or 15 years in renewable but they're hitting these record levels now so many people are actually saying that the the war in ukraine as tragic as it might be it actually gave germany the kick it needed to actually get serious about certain things like renewables mm. and making renewable energy attractive for industry as a for manufacturing not just for domestic but you asked about looking inward um yeah i mean there was a huge amount of soul searching because germany politically is not it's not a simple country it's it's if you look on the map it's it's literally in, in the cold war but even before that going back into history there's part of the German soul that looks east mm. and there's part of the German soul that looks west and we tend to think of Germany because of Conrad Adenauer in the post-war West German you know they they locked step with the Atlantis and joined NATO and so on but there's a huge swath of the population that spent 40 years behind the Berlin Wall behind the Iron Curtain and their socialization their understanding of the world is colored more by America as an aggressor um, as Russia as a protective force and so on. So for those people, the last year and a half have been a very, very, very rude awakening. Mm. But even not everyone is still, I mean, there are still people who would view NATO as the aggressive force. Just cycling home two nights ago, I, I passed a rather uh, rather sad looking bunch of protesters. Half of them were holding up signs about the dangers of um, of vaccines and the other half were talking, holding up signs about NATO is, a, is an aggressive force and, and to get Germany out of NATO. So there are a huge amount of people who, yeah, Germany is sort of, it is looking inward, mm. but it hasn't really, when it looks inward, it doesn't really know what it sees because um, it's such a large country and there's this huge swathes of population with very different histories and very different socializations. So there, there seems to be a large consensus that supporting Ukraine and doing everything it can um, is the right thing to do. But there's a rump there, I'd say about you know 15 to 20%, uh, older East German, I would say more. Mm. And they're not 100% sure that this is the right and that Germany isn't being dragged into uh, bit by bit, step by step into a war situation. And that it already has crossed that line um, uh, because uh, Germany is now supplying, I mean, the next stage will be, do they supply um, fighter planes? They've pretty much supplied everything else at this stage. Also, after a slow start. So it's Germany is looking in on itself and it's it's really not really sure. Germany's never really been sure who it is or what it wants. It's fascinating. It's very good at business, but if we actually ask a German politician, what do you actually want? You just see the whites of their eyes. Um, you see it in defense spending. You either are in NATO and spending as a NATO member or you are not in NATO and you're not spending on the defense member. They 
could take lessons from Ireland there. But they're kind of, they're in NATO, but they're not really spending. Yeah. They're promising to spend, but they aren't. So it's for Olaf Scholz, it's tremendously difficult. You see, I think the Ukraine weapons issue is classic. You, They say no, 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 and then maybe, and then maybe, and then okay. But so he will generally go along with the West and Western allies, but they will be. They don't ever want to be rushing ahead, and they don't want to be laggards either. No, and I think the defence spending is such an important part of discussing Germany. I mean, we could probably do a whole segment on just that and the legacy and what they're trying to do, um, and, and the reluctance to invest in that way. I, I totally get it. It it is an important part of the discussion and debate. And um, just finally, if I can, Derek, one of the things that kind of surprised me when I started to look into this is, and you referenced at the beginning that the two thousand ushered a golden age in for Germany it was envied all over Europe for the trains running on time world beating engineering a country that stood out for stability and when I was looking at it like basic things that we kind of take for granted now have kind of fallen behind things like you know mobile phone coverage investment in tech which everybody is doing now and the renewable energy side that the bureaucracy is so big and so those basic things like are, are they making news and, and headlines on a day-to-day basis over there? Is there is there an active discussion about that type of day-to-day problem that's happening as well as this macroeconomic situation that we're all analysing? Yeah, I mean, there, there are. I mean, my bad days, I sometimes think Germany is sort of a country stuck in some sort of Groundhog Day from 1998. You know, I remember a year or two ago, I was sort of making fun of the Bundestag because they finally got rid of their last fax machines. Germany loves their fax machines. Um, you know, a lot of shops would be very, look at you askance if you try to pay with a card and so on. So there's lots of the bureaucracy. I mean, the digitalization is just not really happening in public administration. So there's a real sense of the country. Uh, and, and sadly, under the Merkel years, it kind of like a lot of electorates, when things are going well, they actually just sit back when those are the years when there's actually cash and capacity to do things like digitalization, to reform public administration, to invest more in public infrastructure. But that isn't happening. And now instead of actually the state intervening to do some of that spending now as the last actor in a, in a recession to actually spend money, Germany's retreating it, saying it wants to balance its budget again. So that's at odds with a lot of European thinking. So it's an awkward place sometimes, but to be honest, you know, when I look at the healthcare I can get, the German train system it has its problems and they're hoping to correct a lot of that. But I wish Ireland had some of the problems Germany had sometimes. Well, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. But Derek, thank you so much for those fascinating insights today. That was Derek Scally of the Irish Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. After the break, we'll be joined by Congressman Brendan Boyle to talk about his family roots here in Ireland and to get his take on what's happening in American politics now. Don't go anywhere. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Congressman Brendan Boyne was born and raised in the city of Philadelphia. He's the son of a Donegal man who only left Ireland in the 70s. He's the first in his family to attend college. He eventually graduated from Harvard University. He was first elected in 2008, now in his fifth term. Congressman Boyle is a ranking member of the House Budget Committee. He's also chairman of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly Political Committee. He's been a powerful, powerful advocate for Ireland during the Brexit negotiations over the past seven years since Brexit. Congressman Boyle, you're very welcome to News Talk. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. Now, you were here in Ireland last week. We were trying to catch up with you then, but you had a very busy schedule. I'm sure you took in that little game that happened last weekend, but you also addressed Dáil Éireann for a special sitting. Tell us how that all came about. Well, it was really a wonderful experience. Uh, You mentioned that I I went to uh, Harvard, fortunate to have a graduate degree from there. But before that, my undergraduate degree is from the University of Notre Dame. And so I, I am a staunch supporter of the Fighting Irish and was very happy to see them play in Dublin and win 42-3. to three. So uh, it was a great atmosphere. Um, I believe it was the large. it's hard to believe, but the largest peacetime movement of Americans to Europe uh, in something like 50 or 60 years. Uh, but what was nice about the game is it provided the impetus to have all of these special events surrounding it. And so there were uh, meetings and symposia and all sorts of gatherings that took place to take advantage of the fact that there were so many people uh, and so many Irish Americans who were in Dublin for the weekend. And one of those meetings 
was in the Dáil Éireann. It was um, brought about by Irish Senator Mark Daly. More than 200 legislators, uh, both state legislators and members of the U.S. House and Senate, sat right there where typically TDs sit, and we had a, uh, a session. Uh, so it was, it was very special, um, and I think moving to occupy those seats, knowing just uh, all the sacrifices that were made uh, in order to create that legislative body a century ago. Yeah, you did bring quite the delegation with you this time. I don't think it's the first time you've addressed the House. Am I right? Have you addressed it before? Addressed it once before. There was a um, diaspora conference, something a little similar, but not nearly um, on the scale of what we saw this weekend. And, you know, I think that as time goes on, we need to have more of these, these sort of sessions either in Dublin or often they happen in Washington during St. Patrick's Week where uh, about half of the Irish government uh, and, and business leaders and, uh, and cultural leaders come on over to the states. Um, I, I think that the, that um, making sure we keep current those transatlantic relationships is uh, just vital. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've attended quite a few of those on Capitol Hill. They're they're quite the um, they're quite the spectacle. But there's an awful lot of business done, as you say, on the margins of those big meetings. Would it be normal for 200 legislators from the US to move on mass like that? Completely unusual. I don't know of any other instance uh, in in which it's happened. So it uh, speaks to just how unique and special. The bonds are between the United States and Ireland. Um, obviously, uh, the, the primary driving factor, uh, the bond of family, um, because this was a, a group from the Irish American Legislators Conference. Um, and then, of course, we have the equivalent of that at, at the federal level. But while we're there, we're able to talk about more than trust family, as important as that is, we're able to talk about our shared values in an ever-changing world and in a world in which literally um, war rages right now on the continent of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something, I suppose, that loomed large during President Biden's visit, uh, that, that connection we have through family, but also through values. Just moving back to the to the 40,000 almost visitors who were here last week, it was it was quite the occasion, actually. I, I It reminded me a lot of St. Patrick's weekend, but um, a lot of American people, not just in Dublin, all over all over Ireland looking and exploring different ways a lot of them that I spoke to were struck by um, how progressive Ireland is now talking about the mm-hmm. amount of foreign direct investment that is here um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about and you've been a huge supporter uh, of, of Ireland and indeed Northern Ireland in the negotiations um, on after Brexit with the, the UK government Um a lot of those visitors last week will have seen the impact of foreign direct investment on the southern economy, um, your home county of Donegal included. But is Northern Ireland missing out on that type of US, US investment with Stormont suspended at the moment um, and the changes that were made in the Windsor Agreement still stuck? Do you think that they're missing out on, on a part that, that, that they could be making more um, advantage of? I think that's quite clear. Um, uh, you know, it's it's rather frustrating that uh, the institutions aren't up and running as uh, they were created in the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. While we've made remarkable strides um, when you look at where things were in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, when you look at then versus today, obviously so much progress has happened, and we shouldn't ignore that. Uh, at the same time, when it comes to the um, legislative body and executive that is supposed to have um, the power devolved to it in Northern Ireland, something like 40% of the time over the last 25 years, it has not been in session because of uh, these sort of breakdowns. So I, I encourage uh, all sides to, to take up uh, their seats. Obviously, there, there's one party in particular that is uh, refusing to do so. Um, I, I think that uh, in time they will come to see um, just how power sharing actually protects everybody, mm. especially as the demographics move uh, over time. 
Yeah, just on that um, issue, if I can stick with it for a second, when the framework agreement, the Windsor framework agreement was published, you said it was taking a huge stumbling block off the table. Um, it even prompted some legislation on your side to allow those negotiations on free trade agreements to happen. But with the Northern Ireland Assembly and Sto- Stormont still not restored, are the government, the American government, planning any further interventions to try and move things along? Well, what we need to see, oftentimes over the last 25 years, um, you know, to be frank, when maybe the stumbling block was on the Republican or nationalist side, you saw um, folks in Dublin or maybe Washington, D.C., reaching out to uh, its contacts to spur them along. Similarly, over the last 25 years, at least until this conservative um, government and the last few conservative prime ministers, you would typically see 10 Downing Street um, reaching out to its natural allies uh, in the DUP and the UUP when they needed to be uh, appealed to. Um, Unfortunately, with with this conservative government and uh, what's been in Westminster the last few years, you don't see that sort of engagement. You don't see much... um, really uh, of a relationship at all between uh, the current um, conservative government in power uh, in Westminster and Dublin. Uh, so that is concerning. They need to speak up and to do more to attempt to uh, motivate um, the contacts they have in the DUP to take up their seats mm. uh, in Storma, again, because it really is in the best interest of all the people who live uh, in Northern Ireland um, in the end, I would say it's as much in their interest, especially long term, as anyone else's. Indeed. Um, I want to turn to the US, if I can, for a few moments, uh, uh, Congressman. Um, the Trump indictments, uh, we can't ignore them. They're occupying a lot of our US-related news here in Ireland. He's way past any contender in the Republican Party, 37%. Uh, his n- his next nearest rival, an, a New York Times poll, said, um, so we're just taking it that barring anything else that he's going to be the the Republican candidate in the race for the next presidential election. But what, if any, effect do you think these indictments are having on that candidacy? Well, so first, um, the Iowa caucuses on the Republican side start in mid-January, followed a week later, uh, in all likelihood, by the New Hampshire primary, and then two other early states before we get to what's nicknamed Super Tuesday in March. Um, uh, I have seen um, from Iowa caucuses in the past, they really change in those final two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Twenty years ago, at this time on the Democratic side, the top two contenders were Howard Dean and Dick Gephardt. They ended up finishing third and fourth, respectively, because in the final two weeks, things moved. John Kerry surged. John Edwards was a close second, and that ended up being the ticket. Uh, that was ultimately the nominees on the Democratic side for president and vice president. And there are other examples as well. Uh, the Republican side in 2012, they had almost different front runner uh, every week. Now, this race is a little bit different because for the first time in about 150 years, you have a former president mm. who is running again uh, for president after he was defeated. That is highly unusual. Uh, so he starts off with a big lead. He will probably be the Republican nominee, but there is still a good 35% chance or so that one of these candidates catches fire at the right moment um, and ends up overtaking him. Mm. Now, in terms of um, his many, many different indictments, it it is pretty remarkable. Uh, Trump is facing trial in four different jurisdictions in South Florida, Georgia, Washington, D.C., and New York State. Um, the first one, it appears, will be the case um, uh, regarding everything that happened January 6th. That'll be in federal court in Washington, D.C. in early March. Um, it may well be the case that the Republican race is wrapped up by the time this case uh, even gets to trial. Mm. So if he is ultimately convicted in May, uh, it would be too late to have an impact on the Republican primary race. But where it would have a real impact is with the general electorate. Um, you know, the independents and the soft Democrats and soft Republicans who will end up deciding this race, 
um, do not look kindly upon convicted felons running for office. As you say, there's there's absolutely nothing normal we can ever apply when we're talking about Donald Trump. So who knows what's going to happen? But um, I, I do take what you're saying. There are there are certain moments that can you know can can catapult a, a, a candidate. But I want to turn a little bit if I can to to President Biden. That New York poll, uh, New York Times poll that I mentioned there had Trump and Biden neck and neck. The surprising thing for me in that poll was. President Biden doesn't get any credit for everything he's done on the economy, nothing on the legislative slide. Also, obviously, people are concerned about his age. But as well as that, nowhere near the level of support from either the African-American community or the Hispanic community. What do you think? Firstly, why do you think he's not getting the credit uh, for delivering on the economy and those judicial changes or even the international interventions and the reputational restoring? Uh, And what is he able to do about that uh, between now and the election itself? Yeah, so believe it or not, that's actually good news. And here's why. Um, If you take the poll at face value, it's roughly 43% for Biden, 43% for Trump with about 14 or so, 14 percent or so undecided. The fact that the solid majority of those undecideds are Democrats mm. and people who have voted Democratic in the past, that it's easier to convince um, your own natural allies who have been with you in the past or who might be sitting on the sidelines at the moment. It's a lot easier to win them back than it to attempt to try to win over people who have been voting Republican. Mm. Um, so I actually take away from that that it's, it's pretty good news. I would also point out, again, looking at recent history, in the, the third year of a presidency is typically not very kind to an incumbent. At this exact point um, in Barack Obama's presidency, every single opinion poll showed him losing to Mitt Romney. Mm. He would go on to beat Romney by four points. At this exact point, in Bill Clinton's presidency, August of the third year, he was losing and losing badly in the polling uh, to Bob Dole and other potential Republicans. Bill Clinton would go on to win uh, in a landslide re-election. Uh, and I think it was also um, the the, uh, the case for Ronald Reagan as well, going back as far as the third year of his presidency, which was exactly 40 years ago. So th- there is a, uh, a, a quirk, I guess, of recent American politics, uh, presidential politics over the last 40 years, that there's this trend in which presidents in the third year uh, are not particularly polling well. Mm. But then once the alternative comes into sharper focus, you do see the incumbent presidents begin to rise back. Yeah, I suppose people's minds are more focused. But I just one final question on that, if I can. Um, a lot of your colleagues saying that there should actually be a primary challenge uh, what do you push the? Uh, what do you think? Why do you think Robert Kennedy and the likes of Marianne Williamson are polling twenty percent and ten percent respectively? What do you put that down to then? Well, so first, I wouldn't say that a lot of my colleagues believe that uh, President Biden should face the primary. Some do, um, but they would be in a pretty solid minority. Um, as far as where Marianne Williamson and, and Robert F. Kennedy uh, Jr. are polling right now. Not too surprising. Um, you know, let's face it, I, I, until very recently, um, people have had to deal with an awful lot. The pandemic took an awful toll on society, um, kind of knocked almost every family out of sorts for a bit, whether it was uh, in terms of their physical health, mental health, financially. We're just coming back from that. Then we had the inflation crisis, the highest inflation worldwide in 40 years. We've now recovered from that. The economic numbers are better today than at any point um, pre-COVID. So people are just starting to feel that and just starting to feel better. So so I'm not very surprised uh, where things are at the moment. I do believe that five months from now, six months from now, especially the way the economy is growing here in the U.S., I do think you'll see much better numbers than what you may see currently. Okay, well, we'll we'll certainly be watching it with interest. Before I let you go, just very quickly, I know you're a big GAA fan, uh, Donegal in particular. (laughs) Jim McGuinness is back, and I don't know if you've heard the news, but he's trying to get Michael Murphy back. Uh, What do you make of that? 
Well, I uh, still remember where I was when Donegal won it in 1992. I was with my father um, at uh, Irish Center here in Philadelphia, and then again in uh, in 2012. I do have a lot of family in Mayo, so if I have a second favorite team, I, it's the long-suffering uh, Mayo fans. Uh, but when I met the, the former T-Shock, Bertie Ahern, uh, last week in Dublin, the first thing he said to me is that, good news for you, Donegal has, a, has the right man back. Uh, at the helm. So I'm hoping, God willing, next summer to be in Croke Park, uh, bring my father, who played GAA football when, when he was growing up in the 50s and early 60s in Donegal, and uh, maybe we'll be back there seeing Donegal uh, play for the Sam Maguire Cup. Oh, well, we, we'll all wish you well with that. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Congressman Brendan Boyle, for joining us on Taking Stock today. Oh, thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Up next, the Electoral Commission have drawn the battle lines for the next general election. We find out who are the winners and the losers when we return after this short break. Stay tuned. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, on Wednesday, the Electoral Commission published a recommendation to government which would see 14 new TD positions become available in the next general election, which has to take place by March of 2025. This would increase the amount of TDs from 160 to 174 in the 34th Dáil. So here to talk us through all the winners and losers and the controversies surrounding this review are Jennifer Kavanagh, who's a constitutional law lecturer at South East Technology University and also Gary Murphy, Professor of Politics at DCU. Now, Gary, I want to start with you. And before you both make all of the predictions and tell us exactly what's going to happen, I'm going to ask you, Gary, to just go back a little bit. Um, this Electoral Commission itself is different. It's a new way of doing things. Can you tell us what has changed and why? Yeah, so the Electoral Commission is a statutory body um, set up and just, just in place, Mandy, over the last uh, couple of months. Um, and, and the aim of the Electoral Commission is to run our elections, basically, and to make sure that they're free, they're fair, um, they're proportional. And the part of its um, remit is basically, and maybe perhaps the most important part, is this um, redrawing of uh, constituency uh, boundaries. Mm. So what it's been doing over the last uh, number of months is um, getting um, it's uh, getting its maps, I think, and looking at uh, how we can um, have our increased population better represented in um, in Dáil Éireann. So one of the, the key recommendations, and these are recommendations, although we fully expect that these will be voted through uh, in the Dáil, one of the key uh, recommendations is the increase in the number of seats from 160 to 174. A pretty substantial increase, but, but not the largest in the history of the state. Way back in 1981, for instance, we went from 148 seats in 1977 to 166 in, uh, in 1981. So that was a pretty substantial mm. uh, jump. But, but prior to the sort of the early 80s, uh, reviews were basically partisan government uh, decisions. And then there was a famous Tully Mander in 1977 where the then uh, Fine Gael Labour uh, government um, redrew the constituencies in basically in what it thought would be its own favour. Uh, this uh, bounced against them in the 77 election when it, uh, it ignored in one way the, the, the key point about PRSTV is that you've got to get a lot of first preference uh, votes. Fianna Fáil got over 50% of the vote and had a huge 20-seat uh, majority. But the government of Jack Lynch then made these, this a more independent structure in relation to um, uh, who would devise and draw the boundaries. And the Electoral Commission, just as I said, in place the last couple of months, now has, has wider functions than simply redrawing uh, constituencies, but that is one of its it, it, one of its um, uh, its remits. And um, as you said, it, it, it garnered a lot of excitement because um, you know politics at the end of the day is it's it, like in one way it's exciting, but it's also you know it's it's uh, voting is really an elemental duty for all citizens, and uh, people like to know where uh, they're voting. And like all constituency reviews, this has thrown up a few uh, yeah. quirks, eccentricities, anomalies. They use what word? Uh, one once, but it's um, it's uh, it's pretty important. The, the key point in terms of the going up of the, the numbers of representatives um, from 160 to 174 is basically to do with our increasing uh, yeah. population. We are we are we are bound by the Constitution, Article 16, uh, that there would be one member for every 20 to 30 thousand 
uh, citizens, but now like that has been sort of routinely ignored. And there is a plus uh, a plus eight percent variance still uh, within this particular uh, boundary uh, commission. Okay, so, so I, and, and and we'll go into that in a little bit of detail in a second, Gary. Jennifer, I want to bring you in here because just standing a little bit back from what came out um, this week. Um, a former politician said to me this week, I said, were you surprised by anything in it? There was a lot of uh, people saying that they hadn't gone far enough and, and the politician said, look, they've given over responsibility and made it completely independent now and they're just going to have to live with it. Did you think uh, the criticism of the commission and not going far enough by some deputies was warranted? Well, the politicians are never going to really like change. In fact, nobody really likes change to begin with. But one of the things that the Commission did stress when they were talking to all the gathered academics that happened on Wednesday is they were saying that one of their main remits was continuity. Mm. And continuity is to keep the, 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 the train on the tracks going along, not having a big, big, massive seismic change because they they did point out that if they were going to add, say, the 20 extra seats that a lot of people were thinking might happen, it would be a domino effect of nearly every single constituency having some sort of a tweak. There was a number of constituencies where they did think there would be a big change, like Donegal, Kerry, that they would get split, didn't happen. Other constituencies, like my own home constituency of Waterford, a lot of people thought that would go to five seats. But they were at pains to point out that if if they were going to change to that 20 number, Everything would have been changed. It would have come down crashing like a house of cards. And they also said that on their projections with the census numbers, which is what determines what really happens, that we will probably be getting at least 10 new TDs added on every five years now. So the commission is in a position whereby they will be living with their decisions. It's not like the old commissions where they started, did their Mm. work, and then they, they were gone. So they are very much looking at the feedback from this, how it's going to go through the legislative process, because they've only said what they think should happen. The end uh, is when it goes to the legislation and that legislation is passed. And for example, Kilkenny, there's already a Twitter account saying Kilkenny says no because the people of Ardingford are extremely exercised at losing their Kilkenny identity and feeling that they're being made part of North Tipperary when it's only election boundaries. It's not making them wear the colours of Tipperary Harding. Yeah, and I heard Verona Murphy on um, talking today about uh, she won't be supporting it in the Dáil and it is important to say that, that this still has to be voted through the Dáil and and there will be uh, much discussion on it um, between now and then. What you're saying there is right and and the Electoral Commission were up pains to point this out during the week. They're not future proofing. They're trying to deal with the here and now. Am I right in thinking as well that they are restricted or constricted by um, terms of reference that the government of the day actually give them? Is that right? Correct. Because a lot of people were saying everything could be solved if we could have six seater constituencies. Mm. But that wasn't in the remit, the terms of reference that they were given. So they were constrained by that and also what's there in the electoral acts. Mm. In the constitution, you just have a minimum of three seaters. So if we were to change the legislation, we could go crazy and go all the ways up to Dane seater constituencies if we wished to do so. But they had to work on the job that they were given. And the concern that a lot of people have with the number of three seaters is because of the way that the election pie gets divvied up. So it's really going to suit the bigger parties when you do have, say, four, five seater constituencies. It has been shown that it does allow the chance for more diversity to get in by sweeping in on the coattails of the transfers. So that's going to be something interesting to watch. How does it go down to the granular level of are we going to see less, shall we say, people before profit just to pick one party off the top of my head because of the impact of this on the smaller 3C constituencies. Gary, can I bring you back in here? I have a question bouncing around for the last couple of days in my head. The six-seater um, aversion to that, why do, do politicians uh, not seem to want to, to go toward a six-seater uh, constituency? And also, when were the last time that we might have had, a, or have we had a, a six-seater constituency before? Uh, the, the answer to the first question, Mandy, is, is I'm not really sure. I mean, I was very intrigued by the Green Party coming out very strongly and complaining that the uh, 
the constituency, uh, the, the commission was sort of uh, bound by the fact that it was uh, three, four and five members. But the last time I checked, the Green Party were in government and, of course, could have done something about it if they had wanted uh, then. It was like intriguing that it was a Green Minister for State, Malcolm Newner, which steered the legislation through uh, the doll. So I didn't quite understand the, the complaints coming from uh, the Green Party when they had something, uh, they could have done something about it. And as far as I know, we haven't had 60 constituencies since the... Um, uh, the insertion of the Constitution in 1937. Now, Jennifer might know a little bit more uh, than me that, that, that and she often does, so uh, she might uh, be able to enlighten us. But as far as I can tell, we haven't had 60 constituencies since uh, Bunrock and uh, here. No, not that there's anything in Bunrock and here to say we should have. We, we can't have uh, 60 constituencies. 60 constituencies are better, obviously, for smaller parties because you need you need a lower first preference vote to be in the uh, in the hunt. So, for example, if you got 10% in a 5C or even 6C, the 6C constituency, you would certainly be in the running for a seat. If you get 10% in a 3C, you have kind of no chance, basically. Mm. Uh, you simply can't make that up on transfers unless you have a type of uh, Bertie Hearn, Cyprian Brady, as you would remember from way back in uh, 2002, I think it was. And, you know, we're, we're Cyprian not only didn't even get a thousand votes, but got elected on Bertie Hearn's uh, coattails. But, you know, that's very rare. Uh, and unusual. So smaller parties, I mean, the likes of people before profit, aim to even the Social Democrats, uh, Labour, you know, they would all prefer larger constituencies uh, because when you go to three, um, and remember, we're now, we're the, the days of two behemoths, you know, for yeah. are gone. We now have three parties, although Sinn Féin have been in a pretty strong position at 30 odd percent in the polls, but we have three medium sized parties and then a whole host of, uh, of small parties. Now, I, I did think the Commission. Um, was constrained by by the government's view that we could only have three, four, or five. And I mean, it, it has asked for the electoral commission in terms of its research that it would look at potentially six C constituencies. But it's a little bit, um, you know, horse and carts there. Yeah. I think they could have done it already. Jennifer, I'll bring you back in here because I wanted to ask about the constitutional changes that may be necessary for to change the system. So you referred earlier that if we applied the um, existing conditions and mathematics to it, we would have uh, an evolving increase over the next number of years. This discussion about capping that, what's your thoughts on that? Well, like a lot of things that a lot of people don't like in Ireland, we can blame Dev <laughs> because it was Dev brought in that rule of the twenty to 30,000 because he was one of the main people behind the 1937 constitution. So we would have two options. Do we want to increase that ceiling or do we actually want to do away with that ceiling altogether? So that would have to be something that would have to go through a referendum because it's there written in it. That's the only way you change it. But the realistic chances of that referendum happening, I would say at the moment, quite low. Mm. Firstly, because we have so many referendums in a holding pattern, uh, a possible referendum on housing and the gender equality one, the patent court. So... It would. I. I don't know when we'd actually find the space to have that. Yeah. But just to come back to the six seat constituency for a second, I have a suspicion that it comes down to something very practical, like the council will be never ending. So it'll be brilliant news for political nerds that we'll have like a seven day count. Bad news for people who are tuning in trying to see Fair City and it's been delayed again. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to say that, that that was the answer. <laughs> All right. Um, Jennifer, just to, to get your assessment on some of the constituencies that you might have been surprised by or what stood out for you? I think the Wexford Wicklow one is going to be the most interesting one, as you've already said, that Verona Murphy is not going to vote for it, but she's she's an independent, so she has her own voice on that matter it's primarily because of where the sitting TDs are actually based that I don't think there's really anyone that is fundamentally based in that new constituency. Maybe Malcolm, um, um, the, one, of the, one of the senators who's just, uh, his name has just escaped Malcolm my head for a second. Malcolm. Uh, exactly, yeah. Malcolm Byrne. Uh, he, he would probably stand a very good chance there, but it's where everything else is going to get carved up between the sitting TDs who would probably like to stay as TDs, if not ministers. Mm, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Gary, just uh, to go back to you on, on that constituency issue as well. 88 is the new magic number that we're all going to be looking for come the general election. Sinn Féin, will they be happy with this Electoral Commission report? 88 is a lot, Mandy, as you know. I mm. mean, it will be... Um, you need a fair win to get uh, to get close as an individual party. Um, so I mean, 
Sinn Féin on, their, on, their, on their great day in 2020 uh, on about 24.5% got uh, 38 seats. So, you know, you want to be getting another 30 um, to give you, and you'd still be 20 short. Mm. Um, and I think that is one of the big difficulties is this idea of uh, where a, a potential Sinn Féin-led government will get all its extra uh, seats for I, I think they'll be relatively happy. I mean, there are a few things, uh, two, two, three seaters uh, in Donegal. I think would have been better for them, where they would have definitely have probably have got four out of the six seats there. Um, so I think they'll be disappointed that that remains a, a five seater. I see Johnny Gork complaining in Mead West that he's lost a bit of West Mead, but I, I think he will certainly hold on uh, in Mead uh, in Mead West. Um, I, I think Champagne would be relatively uh, satisfied. I, I don't see any huge. Uh, Losses, and in one way, like we might get obsessed about constituencies and redrawings, but at the end of the day, elections are about votes and about votes cast. You need votes, um, and notwithstanding, you know, the outrage that someone like Verona Murphy has had, John McGinn is complaining bitterly about uh, parts of Kilkenny now being in Tipperary uh, North. We we had Jennifer Carroll McNeil complaining that Fox Rock had been had been moved. Uh, from her constituency, um, Sean Sherlock in Cork uh, East complaining that Mallow, his home base, is now in Cork uh, North Centre. So everybody is a little bit uh, disappointed, and, and I think it's um, you know the, the TDs and potential TDs and wannabe TDs will just have to look and uh, you know and decide where they where they stand and are they going to run or, or not. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I think it also points to that 88 now is going to solidify in everyone's mind the fragmentation of governments going forward. Like, there's yeah. A, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Jennifer, and the want, one thing, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the one thing I would say is the only thing that we're guaranteed out of this is a much longer time to try and get a programme for government together. Wow. Because it's been taking a long time to find the numbers, as Gary was saying there, but what, what Sinn Féin would need, it's going to take even longer. So that's the only dead cert I can see out of this. It's going to take longer to get governments together. OK, before I just let you go, Jennifer, final question for you um, on the constitutional law side of things. And the seems to seems to suggest that the government uh, have taken too long to prepare for the women's um, referendum that was promised for November. What's your thinking around that? Do you think it's going to happen or not? Uh, like a lot of people who would like to see some sort of change on that article, it has taken far too long. It's gone through constitutional conventions, citizens' assemblies, I'm actually waiting for them to create a new constitutional review body just to bounce it over to that again. So it is getting out of hand. Somebody needs to make a decision and we need to see a vote on this happening at some stage because it's been recommended now time and time again with bodies taking a lot of money, obviously because experts have to be paid for staff, etc., and they just need to push it now to a referendum. Well, perhaps we'll come back to uh, that issue on another day. Didn't have time really to explore it. But for now, I want to give my thanks to Jennifer Kavanagh, constitutional law lecturer at Southeast Technological University, and also to Professor Gary Murphy of DCU. Thank you very much both for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks as always to today's guests for their time and their insights and also thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.